Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 21, verses 18 and 19. Hear God's good word to us. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, hey again. Um, You know, here we are, week two in the new year, um, and some of you feel like you can still accomplish your New Year's resolutions, so good on you. And and here's the deal. One thing that I love about the new year is that it's kind of like a restart button, isn't it? There's just something about it that, that draws out this longing that we can be better, that I can be better, a better dad, a better husband, a better human being, just more broadly. And, uh, you know, you, so you start to make all these kinds of goals. You make promises, like, I promise to myself that I will not sit down and eat a whole large pepperoni pizza from Minsky's in one sitting, right? <laughs> no matter how good it is and no matter how wonderful it feels in the moment, it always feels terrible at the end. I won't, I won't, I won't. Well, just this last Sunday, Allie and I do something we do every year. We sit down and we look forward to what the year holds. We first look back and thank God for all that he's done in our lives and in our world. And, and then we look forward. And say, okay, what are the goals? What what is God calling us to? How is he shaping us? How is he forming us? And and we do all of this. We make these goals and these plans because of this underlying idea, this underlying belief that it's never too late. It's never too late to change. It's never too late to get better. It's never too late to be better. And I think as Christians, we've all people can get behind that, right? Right? I mean, in Jesus, there's forgiveness to the utmost. Like, there is no bar for what Jesus won't forgive. And with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, he can do radical transformation. It's never too late. And maybe that's why you're here this morning. You know, as we enter into this new year, you knew something was missing. You can't put your finger on it, but you can feel it. And as you come, you know somehow church has a part to play in it and somehow God has a part to play and maybe you don't know how to bring it all together, but you know you've made this resolution that you're going to be more healthy broadly and especially spiritually, so you want to do more, whatever that means. Well, I want you to know it is never too late and I'm really personally glad you're here today. I really am. And here's why. I deeply believe it's never too late till it is. Wait, what? Right? Oh, but here's the deal. We know that, okay? We, we can say it's never too late, but we know deep down in our bones there comes this moment for every young boy that they can no longer try out and make it into the Olympics, right? No matter how hard I try, I've missed, I've missed my window, except for maybe curling, but that doesn't really count. I mean, even this guy knows he's kind of wasted his life. Look at his face, right? It doesn't really count. There comes a point in like every one of our lives where we just say, okay, I'm not going to just jump into this marathon. There comes a point if you've had really poor oral hygiene, you're not going to be able to keep all of these pearly whites, okay? It's never too late till it is. So the real question is what are we going to do with the chance that we have, the time between? And I think that's what Jesus is getting at in our passage this morning. Okay, so if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles or your Bible apps to Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21. Now, if you weren't able to join us last week, um, we are re-entering 
Matthew's eyewitness account of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. We spent uh, most of last year in Matthew's historical account, and now we're re-engaging that, and we're going to be in it for the last week of Jesus' life all the way up to Easter, okay? And maybe there's like this question mark that's popped in the back of your mind, like why are we taking so much time on seven days? I mean, seven days, really. Well, it's because... A majority of the real estate in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John cover these last seven days. Without these last seven days, there is no good news. Without these last seven days, there is no gospel. The whole center and the whole turning point of history happens in these last seven days. So much so that people have said the gospel accounts are basically stories of the cross of Jesus with really long introductions. So with that being said, Let's enter into this last week. And we come across Jesus here with what appears to be a bad case of the Mondays, right? So Sunday before he rode into Jerusalem, which was the religious center of the known world at the time, and he shows up to the temple a bit rambunctious, turns over some tables, right? He scolds the religious leaders. You've probably heard this story. If you were here last week, we covered that story. And at the end of it, the only people who are still singing his praises are kids, kids. Well, night comes and he travels out of Jerusalem to a small nearby town called Bethany. And on Monday morning, he's heading back to Jerusalem. And he comes across this fig tree looking for, you guessed it, figs. Um, He wasn't looking for oranges, all right? He's looking for figs and he finds a whole bunch of nothing. And so he tells this tree off. It withers. And you got to just, you just got to imagine one of the disciples was like looking around. I was like, dude, who was supposed to get Jesus's Snickers? right? (laughs) Judas, right? It's always Judas, just so you know. Um, But it's it's a bit of a bizarre story. So what's happening here? What's going on? What you need to know is that this wasn't like the season of figs and like all of these trees had figs everywhere except for like this one tree. And Jesus is like, what's wrong with this one tree? Everybody else is producing figs, but not this tree. No, you need to understand that this was one of the few trees that actually had fig trees that had leaves on it. And with fig trees, leaves basically come at the same time as the fruit, the figs themselves, or at least really close in proximity in terms of time. This tree should have fruit. It looks like it has fruit, but it has nothing. It's communicating that it's fruitful, but it's producing absolutely nothing. And Jesus is saying, we come to see But this is a lot like the religious leaders in Jerusalem at the time. Really, every religious person ever. Because if you go into Jerusalem, you'd think that this city, I mean, the place where the temple was, throughout history, this was the unique space where God has made his presence known more explicit than anywhere else. Here in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and the people who are there, they make it a point. I mean, of all people, to look like they've got fruit. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests. But they've got a host of leaves and no fruit. And Jesus says, time's running out. Time's running out. Now, this isn't new news. Hang with me here for just a minute, okay? John the Baptist had said this to these religious leaders not too 
um, not too long before this, years before, when John the Baptist is calling God's people back to repentance, saying, you've got sin in your life, you need to get right with God, you need to admit that you are wrong, change your mind, come and be baptized. And some of the, the Pharisees and the, the, the scribes, they show up. And John the Baptist, you know, this forever diplomat, listen to what he says here in our gospel account of Matthew earlier, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, your words aren't fooling anyone. Change the way you live and lead, right? Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If you look across the gospel accounts, it's the religious people, the people who can flash some leaves, who, who feel like they can hide in their leaves. They're, those are the people that drive Jesus the most nuts. Religious people, they're like, like the fig tree. They can keep up these appearances. They can look like things are great. They can put on a smile. But deep down, there is great unhealth because they cannot and will not and are not producing fruit. And time's running out, Jesus says. And so today when we come to our passage, this is Jesus' wake-up call to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, to religious people everywhere, to people who make it a point to come to church, people like us, people who very well may know the rules and can flash some leaves. And so after Jesus' object lesson with the fig tree, you know where he heads? He heads back to the temple in Jerusalem. And he gets in this argument with the religious leaders, or basically they argue with him and say, who gives you the right, Jesus? Where do you get this authority to say and do what you're saying and doing? And it leads to nowhere because they don't want to secede their authority, their power to Jesus. And this is where we find ourselves landing this morning. Because in response to that, in revealing the brokenness of these religious individuals, Jesus tells three parables, three short stories. And in them, he gives people like you and me, people who know the rules, who can maybe flash some leaves. He gives us three ways to guarantee a frustrating failure of a life. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? <clears throat> so no matter what else you got going on this year, if you want to guarantee some frustration, if you want to end it all in failure, then just do these things. 2017 can be the most frustrating and most failing year you've got on the books. If you just follow these three simple pathways. And Jesus lays them out, and what we'll see at the end is how it doesn't have to end up that way, okay? So let's dive in. Here's the first way to guarantee a frustrating failure of a life. Be more worried about looking the part than actually living the part. Be more worried about looking the part than actually living the part. Jesus shows us this in the first story, and you can see this in your text here in verse 28. This guy he has two sons, right? And he asks them both to help him out with the family business. The first son tells his father, no way am I coming out there to help you. But then he changes his mind and he goes out and helps his father in the business. The second son says, oh, I'm there. I'm your son. I will honor you. I'll do it all. And then he never shows up. And then Jesus raises the question, which of these two sons actually does the will of the father? Which of these sons, in other words, is fruitful? And we all know who it is. It's the first son. Even though he gave the wrong answer at the beginning, at the, at the beginning his actions spoke louder than his words. Because lip service is never enough. Leaves are not enough. 
We know this in every other sphere of our life. And it's the same with Jesus. And no matter whether you think you're religious or not, I think this one hits pretty close to home. I think we're all a little too obsessed with our own self-image management, right? Um, If you can look good without doing anything, sign me up, right? It's like the person when you're done cleaning up a room and they just happen to come in and say, can I help with anything? Yeah, like 30 minutes ago, right? They were watching from a distance. Okay, maybe I'm speaking from personal experience. That's me. If I do that, call me out. But listen, we, we do that in a host of ways by curating our Facebook page, by keeping up appearances or a good image with our parents or maybe with our kids. We do that by condemning the right people so everybody knows that we've condemned the right people and we're not a part of that group. Or maybe we just don't care what people think of us and we want to make sure that they think that about us, right? And we do that in a host of ways. Your leaves are not enough. And Jesus, he wants more than our lip service. He wants our confession to result in obedience because he's concerned with life breaking into our death. That's why Jesus says right after this story, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they go into the kingdom of God before you. Listen to this. You can't capture the audacity of how this landed with the priests. I mean, the prostitutes were like the lowest of the low. Tax collectors were the lowest of the low in this society. And Jesus says they've got a better chance of making it in than you. Why? Because you don't have to convince a prostitute that when she comes to Jesus, her life has to change. You don't have to convince a tax collector that when they surrender their life to Jesus, it's going to totally alter the way they do their work, if they do that work at all. Jesus wants to change your everything. It's not about just keeping up appearances. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they've got deep Bitterness, anger, pride that's residing within them. And sure, they can say all the right words, but sin continues to dominate their lives. So when Jesus was calling, or John was calling them to repent, and Jesus then follows in that same pathway and and affirms John's ministry and calls people to follow him, to pick up their cross and follow him, they know, prostitutes and tax collectors know that Jesus is going to change everything not just certain parts of their lives. Do you want to know how you can guarantee a really frustrating and failure of a life? Then just just be worried about looking the part, not living the part. But there's more. Jesus has another way uh, to communicate and guarantee a frustrating and failure of a life. Here's number two. Don't serve anyone other than yourself. Don't serve anyone other than yourself. Make all your goals about you. All your plans about your self-fulfillment, period. Don't serve anyone other than yourself. And Jesus tells the story like this here in verse 33 of chapter 21. There's this guy who owns a pretty large vineyard, and he invests a lot. I mean, he puts up fences. He puts up a tower. He builds a wine press because this land has a lot of potential for producing fruit. And then he hires some or brings in some tenants, some renters, to work the land And then he leaves out of town. Harvest season comes and he sends one of his servants to go and collect a portion of the fruit as their payment for working and tilling his land. So the owner, when he sends his servant, what's the response of the tenants? Well, first, it says they beat the owner's servant and they send him away. 
So the owner sends another servant. This one they murder. So he sends another servant. This one they stone. Until finally he sends another after another after another after another. And every servant he sends is met with violent rejection. But the owner has one more, one more play. He decides he's going to send his son because surely they'll respect his son. He's the representation of all of his authority. But what happens in this story is that the tenants, they kick the son out of the vineyard and they murder him, thinking that this is their chance because if the son, if he doesn't have a son, then he has no one to pass on his inheritance to. And maybe the land will fall to the tenants. And then Jesus asks, what do you think? The owner of the vineyard does to those tenants. More forgiveness? More opportunities to make it right? It's never too late, right? No. The religious leaders, they zealously answer Jesus in a way that we all know we would. The owner should kill those miserable people and rent his land out to people who will actually give him the fruit. And listen to what Jesus says in response here down in verse 42. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its, what? Fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And in verse 45, we read that the religious leaders knew exactly that Jesus was pointing his finger at them. And if there wasn't a crowd there, which they were absolutely terrified of, they would have had the authorities arrest him then and there. They knew Israel had persecuted the prophets time and again, murdered the prophets when they came and spoke truth to the brokenness in their community and in their lives. And Jesus foretells, hey, you're not going to like what I have to say either, and you're going to come put me to death. And sure enough, they follow right into the trajectory to seeking to put him to death, fulfilling the latent prophecy and the story that Jesus is telling them. Why? Because they don't want to serve anyone other than themselves. And look, I know it's not like Jesus is standing right in front of you and you're trying to figure out a way to call in the KCPD. Okay, I get that. But this warning, it lands on us too, as religious people. I want you to think about this. Ask yourself this question. Does Jesus have the authority to tell you what to do when you don't want to do it? When Jesus tells you to forgive that family member for that one thing or for those couple things, does that change your relationship dynamics? When Jesus says, hey, don't pursue harm of your enemies, but actually pray for their good, does that change your relationship dynamics in your calendar? When Jesus says, hey, don't hoard your wealth, but actually live a life of generosity. It's more blessed to give than receive. Jesus actually wrote that. That was original with him. Does that change the way your budget looks and your own generosity? When Jesus says, don't have sex until you're married, and he says this in a host of ways when he talks about immorality, does that actually change the most intimate of your relationships? Because listen, if you can't remember a time when God has challenged you in the way you see the world, chances are really good you've just been talking to yourself. Because Jesus, he challenges and ticks off everybody, not just the people we're always pointing fingers at. And it's often really hard for me. I find myself just in my own quiet time going, Jesus, this is so hard. 
I find myself wrestling in certain of my own idols, and I think, again, I've got to grow here. You're calling me to this. And then when I do lean into it, I see the life that he's been promising for sure. This doesn't mean there isn't pain, but there's life in the far side of obedience. Listen, if there hasn't been a time where you obeyed Jesus and it cost you something, where you said to Jesus, I don't know if this feels good, but because you're the authority, you're the owner of the vineyard, I will say yes to you. If that's never happened and you're just looking, you're probably just full of leaves and no fruit. Listen, we aren't our own masters. Time and again, Jesus is called Lord, King, Master. And if you want to guarantee a frustrating life of failure, then don't serve anyone other than yourself. But there's one more story, one more that'll guarantee this frustration and failure no matter how religious you try to lead your life, and it's this, let everything else crowd Jesus out. Let everything else crowd Jesus out. And I know what you're probably thinking. This is where Gabe makes me feel guilty for being busy. No, it's worse than that. <laughs> Ooh, that was fun. Now, no, I'm, I'm totally kidding. But this, this, this story, it's one of my favorites from Jesus, but it's one of the most haunting, and it terrifies me about my own heart. Okay? And this is how the story goes. There's this king who throws a wedding feast for his son. It's huge, it's lavish, it's the works, and he invites all of his family and friends, like the, the really rich and famous people, the people you'd expect with the king. And listen, no one takes him up on the invitation. No one. Which is kind of crazy, because this is the kind of party that would have rivaled the ball drop in Times Square, minus the Mariah Carey fiasco, right? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I know what's up. Listen, <clears throat> what couldn't be better than this? And yet no one could make it. No one. And so the king's thinking, well, maybe the invitation got lost in the mail. Maybe they misunderstood. I mean, I am the king. This is disrespectful not to come for one. But I mean, this is like an amazing party. So he's like, well, I'll send out some servants. And they'll begin to describe how amazing this party is because maybe just people don't get it. And so they're going out and they're saying, hey, what's your favorite barbecue? Jack Stack. It'll be there. You know, it's like the music's going to be bumping. You've got to see the swag bag you're going to get at the end of this thing. It's going to be off the chain, right? And what's everybody's response? Still, some people roll their eyes and walk away. Some people bury themselves in work. And others get so violently opposed that they beat and even murder some of the servants who come with the message. Who would willingly choose to miss this? I mean... What wouldn't you move in your calendar? What wouldn't you find, speaking to myself here, a babysitter for to go? And yet we aren't that different today, are we? God's grace and his abounding goodness that he longs to offer us, we hold at arm's length. And we instead choose to be satisfied with lifestyles that leave us hollow, repeat decisions that ultimately destroy us, and when Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, we say, well, that's all well and good, but I've got this to take care of. I'll get to you in a minute. So what happens in our story? Well, the king who is the king does what kings do who bear the rod of justice. In the face of injustice, the un justifiable murder of these servants, the king sends out his troops and he murders and he kills everyone who murdered his servants. 
Don't miss this in the story. Otherwise, you're going to have a false dichotomy of the God of the Old Testament being a God of justice and the God of the New Testament being a God of mercy. No, this is a God that is very complex and that he is both merciful and just simultaneously. And it's true in Jesus, especially for the vulnerable. And he pulls together his servants and he goes, I want to try this again, okay? This time, when you go out, just find anybody who's willing to come and honor the king. Anybody who's willing to give of their time and actually be here. Anyone? Anyone. So they go out to the streets and they start bringing together all these people. And the one thing they have in common is that they were willing to be there. Some people you would respect. Some people you would never expect sitting across the table from one another. And there's the warning. If you want to guarantee missing out on the best God has to offer, then just let everything else crowd Jesus out. Many are invited. Many actually choose not to come, but some are chosen. And that's how our story ends. It's never too late till it is. There's only so many invitations you'll receive, only so many messages that you can hear, only so many opportunities to respond until the fig tree becomes your story, the story of every other religious person who chooses to disregard Christ. But listen, it doesn't have to end that way, okay? It doesn't have to end that way. God doesn't want it to end that way for you. That's why he's given us these stories in his word. This is why he sent his son Jesus. I don't want that to be the end for you. I'm, I'm fairly certain you don't want that to be the end for you. So maybe you're here sitting and, and, and you're beginning to actually do some introspection and think over the past year and even the plans you have for this year. And you're thinking, man, I've been, I've been living and even planning to just focus on looking the part rather than living the part. Because if you really live the part, it might even taint your image a little bit. It's going to cost Maybe as you've been looking over your life, you, you realize the way you've been leading your life is that you're unwilling to serve anyone other than yourself. And maybe, just maybe, you're looking back across your life and even the plans you have for this year and you think, man, I've just let everything else crowd Jesus out. You've been calling yourself a Christian for years, but you do an inventory and it's a bunch of leaves and no fruit. Don't shrug that off. Lean in. Ask why that is. And maybe, maybe just maybe, you don't even consider yourself religious. And you, you said, hey, I'm going to try church out again for the new year. And you're here and you're hearing God's invitation there to this glorious banquet. Don't push it aside. That's God tugging on your heart. It's never too late. It isn't yet. But it will be one day. And if, that's, if you fit in any of those buckets this morning... You're probably asking, now what? Now what? If you don't want to live your life in frustration and you don't want to end up a failure at the end of everything and you don't want 2017 to just be a repeat of what happened last year, now what? Well, there's good news, but it's not easy news. It's doing the one thing that religious people always have struggled to do. It's doing the one thing that the religious leaders found themselves almost impossible to do. It'll change the way you live your life. It'll change the way you do your work. It'll change the way you engage every relationship, every sphere of your life. And it's this, give Jesus the right to change your everything before it's too late. 
Give Jesus the right to change your everything before it's too late. And I'm not just talking about the way you talk or the way you think. I'm talking about what you love. What you love, what you're chasing, and how you live everywhere. Give Jesus the right to change your everything before it's too late. And here's how I think this kind of plays out this next week. I think this is an appropriate application to what we see Jesus teaching and calling us to in his word this morning, is that every day this next seven days, this next week, one of the first questions I want you to ask yourself is what's that one thing that's holding back everything? Because chances are you're probably surrendering some things, but there's that one thing. That one thing that you keep saying, maybe, not yet, maybe later, or God, that's mine. We've all got that one thing that's wrestling, that's vying for our attention. Maybe it's a fear that's been dominating your thoughts, a misplaced love that's creeped in the back door, a longing, a destructive habit you refuse to surrender, a sin you've kept in the dark, because if you reveal it, if you confess it, if you ask for help in it, it'll obviously force you to lose face. It could be a grudge that's become really cozy in the dark recesses of your heart. Let Jesus change that. Give him your everything, not just some things. And think about what's that one thing that's holding back everything. Maybe you're like the first son in the first story, right? He said, no way. And then he had to change his mind. Repent is what that means. And say, yeah, I was wrong. And now obey Jesus. Maybe you're like the tenants in the vineyard. And you, you've been trying to serve yourself and you don't want to admit that you're not the owner of, of your own self. You don't want to admit that there's another master. And so you're refusing to give anything to anyone else, especially Jesus, especially that thing you've worked so hard for, you've held on so dear. What's that one thing that's holding back everything? But to do that, you have to enter a level of trust, don't you? To enter that level of trust, you have to believe that Jesus has the right to make that demand of you. That he's more than just an interesting man in the first century who made a mistake and found himself on a cross. But that he's God become flesh, who broke into a broken world, who lived a perfect life, who died the sufficient death and rose again, and comes now with all authority in heaven and on earth, and has now passed on that authority to, to his apostles as we read at the end of Matthew. It also, means, it also means that you have to trust that whatever he changes, he's changing for the better. Both of those things have to go together. You have to trust that he has the right, the authority to make that demand. And when he does, it's always for our good, always better than what we thought. That we were wrong and that he is right. That we are skewed and he is clear. Whatever you think is filling you today is nothing in comparison to the feast he has in store for us. That's what we're reminded by this, this story once again and again, that God wants your good, not to keep you from good. But sometimes it's not until the far side of that reality rather than the near side. You see, the gospel, it comes with limitless grace such that the worst of the worst can enter in because the gospel is not, it's not news to make good people better. It's news to make dead people alive, but we don't know how to live. And so when, when the gospel 
meets us, religious or not, it gives us life. But now we have to learn to live like we're alive and let Jesus be the master of showing us what it means to be truly human, to be alive. So it comes with limitless grace, but also limitless demand always for our limitless good. And I'm confident that if you're here today, if you're here today, it's not too late. You haven't given up on the church yet if you're here because the church is absolutely essential to the mission of God in the world. If you're here, you haven't wandered too far yet. You haven't isolated yourself dangerously enough yet. And the reason I'm so confident in this fact is, you know what happened to some of those priests who heard Jesus' warnings in our passage this morning? The, the, the gospel writer Luke He accounts the earliest days of the church in the book called Acts. And he goes on to say that some of these priests, some of the priests who were completely convinced that Jesus was nothing but a sham, who actually participated in bringing about the crucifixion of Jesus, watched him die. When they heard about the resurrection, what happens? Look with me, Acts chapter 6, verse 7. It's up on the screen. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Where? In Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became what? Obedient to the faith. If they can repent and become a part of God's family, so can you. I mean, they were so convinced. How convinced do you have to be? How blind do you have to be that you see Jesus before you and you actively are helping figure out the plans to crucify him? You watch him as he dies and you mock him, but then you hear about the resurrection. How much face would you lose and you say, he is the Messiah, I was wrong. He's the son of God. He rose again and he has all the authority. I was wrong. And they become obedient to the faith. If that can happen to them, it can happen to anyone in this room. There is no lost cause. It's never too late until it is. And why would, you, why would you choose to be more worried about looking the part rather than living the part when you know it's going to kill you unless you're enslaved? Why would, you, why would you choose to be unwilling to serve anyone other than yourself if you know it's going to absolutely kill you unless you're enslaved. Why why would you let everything else crowd out the beauty, the glory of Jesus and what he has in store for you when you know it's going to obliterate your soul unless you're enslaved? And Jesus came to die to break those chains, to pay our penalty. And now through the gospel, we can live the life we were designed to live as human beings in relationship with God. He's called us by the power of spirit to now be people whom the Holy Spirit produces fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Why wouldn't you want that? It's never too late. Here is invitation. Take him up on his offer before it is. Let's pray. God, I need this for me. I know I'm tempted so often to show off my leaves, to hide behind leaves, or maybe because I've been following Jesus for a while now, just be content with leaves instead of continuing to see you produce fruit in my life, that you're calling us to ever growth in the gospel, 
Lord Jesus, help us to trust you are who you say you are, to rest in your finished work, and then to surrender our whole lives to you. All by the power of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, come and convict us of sin. Point us to the truth in Jesus. So many of us, and it still happens, and even if we've been following Jesus for a while, we can be blinded by sin. And Satan can come and seek to destroy what you're seeking to redeem. And I pray, Lord, that you would be breaking through hearts and minds, even now, this morning, guiding us to repentance, to admit our wrongdoing, to admit our wrong perspectives, and to surrender and to choose the life and life abundant you've called us to partake in in following you. God, help us. We cannot do this in our own strength. God, guide us, for we do not know the way. Preserve us. We're so weak and prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.